Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. It's The Stacks Book Club Day, and we are discussing our very first graphic memoir on the show. The book is The Best We Could Do by T. Bowie, and our guest to help us break down this book is herself the author of a critically acclaimed graphic memoir, Good Talk. She's also a novelist and cultural critic. It is the brilliant Mira Jacob. Our conversation focuses on history, family, and the permissions we are given from our parents. There are no spoilers on today's episode. Please be sure to listen to the end of the episode to find out what our August book club pick will be. If you love the show and want to support my work in creating it every single week, please consider joining the Stacks Pack on Patreon. You earn perks like our monthly book club where we discuss the Stacks Book Club picks in detail and get shout outs on the show and more. Plus, you earn my undying gratitude because your monthly contribution makes this show possible. Truly, there's no The Stacks without The Stacks Pack. If you want to join, please head over to patreon.com slash The Stacks. I realize I say this every single week, but I never spell it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the stacks. Now, a little thank you to our newest members, Tiffany Douglas, Samantha E. Anderson, Kiali, Courtney Burgess, and Shannon Weeks. Truly, the show does not exist without you all and the wildly generous humans that make up the stacks pack. Now, it's time for our spoiler-free discussion of The Best We Could Do by T. Bowie with the brilliant Mira Jacob for the Stacks Book Club. All right, everybody, we are back. It's the Stacks Book Club Day. We've brought back the wonderfully, incredibly talentedly, I've added a lot of Lees, but just the wonderful, <laughs> amazing Mira Jacob. Mira, welcome back. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. And everyone, we are talking about The Best We Could Do by T. Bowie, which is a graphic memoir, another another graphic book, our first ever on the podcast. So let me just be really straightforward. I may sound like a fucking idiot because I don't know anything about this genre. I have read a total of three books that are graphic and I've read all three of them within two weeks of each other. So congratulations. Amazing. Amazing. But also let's just say that one of the most incredible things about graphic books is you don't have to be an expert in them. Like you just you just talk about what moves you or what's interesting to you or how it works. We don't have to be experts. We just have to be able to say what it is about this book, which is so amazing. And I've got many things to say about that. Okay. So. so let's start. I always start here. 
very generally, what did you think of the book? Okay. (laughs) I will tell you that the first time I read this book, I tore through it, probably read it in, I mean, I swallowed it. It was like Mm. maybe like two hours Mm. of just reading. And then I realized at the end I was bereft and immediately turned it over and started reading it again. Hmm. I found this book to be so astonishing because it was showing me things that I hadn't really seen before. Just to describe this book a little bit for the viewers at home. So the um, T. Bowie's drawings are, you know, they're basically black and white drawings. And she, she takes this one color of almost a, like a reddish brown. That she thins out sometimes. It sometimes it looks like dried blood. Sometimes it looks like an orange sky. She just does all the tones that that one color can do, and it's um, it's always kind of this beautiful watercolor that floats through the drawing, and it touches different parts of the drawing, and it draws your eye to different things. So sometimes it's a shadow on the floor, and sometimes it's a little bit of a cloud, and sometimes it's the way that a certain wave is going to curl up and and push the family forward as they were boat people. She talks about that, mm-hmm. about the fact that this is, they made their escape um, from Vietnam. And so this book to me was talking about a time that I was not totally, I, I was, you know, really young in the early seventies and I understood something had happened with Vietnamese people because of the way that they were being spoken about around me. And this was like a missing piece of a puzzle told by the person I most needed to hear from. Hmm. I love that. I really, I mean, again, I'm new to graphic novels. So I was like, I don't know if I'm going to get it. And the thing is that like, I got it, you know, and that's always such a good feeling. And that's how I felt (laughs) about your book. Like I got it. I'm, I'm not as dumb as I thought. Like I could understand this thing. And I loved the way that the art and the history came together. For me, the history was just so interesting. I love history. Like that's one of my favorite genres to read. That's one of my favorite things to think about, especially modern, like post-Civil War, especially things that have to do with war. So like this sort of Mm -hmm. fell in this place that I was not expecting to love so much. Um, Oh, this is very exciting. I'm like, you did all your sweet spots. It really did. And, and, In a way, like, and I wasn't expecting that because I was like, oh, I'm nervous about graphic novel, right? Like, I'm nervous about the the genre, and so what if it doesn't work for me? And it totally did. Um, And what I found interesting is another genre that I love is memoir. And for some reason, the memoir I was less taken with. And I think Mm. that's because Mm -hmm. I was so overwhelmed by the way the history was done. I just loved that so much. And, like, I had this thought of like, maybe is this book YA a little bit because of the way that she is teaching history in this really approachable way. And then I sort of walked that back because I don't think that it is, but I do think that there is this really approachable and understandable simplicity in this book that is what felt like YA to me. You know, like it was like this, I'm, I'm showing you something, I'm teaching you something, I'm explaining something in a way that maybe you've never had it taught explained shown to you and I think that's what that was yes and I like that I like when a book feel when I think a book is good and adult and complex and also think could this be YA you know like that's like a huge compliment that's how I felt about Homegoing by Yaa Jesse is like this could be YA like I know <laughs> there's heavy stuff in this but like a 16 year old could read this and have their world shifted 
And yes. that's really fucking cool. So that's sort of like my general take on the book. Um, the thing that I will probably remember forever about this book is the very early pages where it's the whole history of Vietnam for like 150 years. And it's like takes up two pages and kind of like arcs around and it's like this squiggly line of like, wow, I now understand <laughs> what the fuck the Vietnam War was pretending to be about because I'd never, I mean, I watched that whole fucking Ken Burns documentary and this two page thing, like I was like, Oh, I get it now. And that's like a real feat. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, you know, I think, so for me, one of the things that I found myself doing the second time, which was immediately after the first time (laughs) when I read this was I realized how many of the images were telling a story that was slightly, slightly different than the, than the words. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I had to go back and really just let the images in because her images are complex Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they are dark and they're beautiful and they have these echoes. So like, if you go to, I'm just going to describe pages for people because I feel like that's a fair thing to do. If you go to page 84, right. Okay. Yes. And she's talking about this, this kind of phenomenon that so many of us had been through, which is that she didn't know her father. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that there was a way in which he was really a kind of reticent man. He was not, not a nice man. Mm -hmm. Um, And he wasn't like a warm man. And yet this was her father and this mystery of him. So if you go to page 85, you see this beautiful drawing of what looks like his body floating in water and it says Bo slept alone in his bed at night and practiced leaving his body I practiced being brave so it's this sort of connection that they have and if you look at that picture and then you go a few pages ahead to page 90 Mm. you see this thing where she she used to have a dream of um when she was asleep, she had a dream about being in her house and her house was filled with water and she was paddling around in it. And you see her again, a little girl's body floating in the water, but it's encased by her house. And so like the kind of emotional work that happens in a moment like that. Yeah. I didn't get it the first time because I was pushing so far, so fast to figure out what happened. But something like that is actually really you know, that's like a really beautiful way to show what generational trauma looks like mm-hmm. and to like, let us hold it in our minds. And there was, there were so many moments like that in this where I just thought, Oh, you're, you have this really simple thing happening on the page and I get all of it. And then right under that is something so heartbreaking and layered and deep. And it's almost like I can read every page of this book 15 times. Yeah. I I probably should read this book like eight more times because I I you get the sense of like I'm there's more here. You know, oh, yeah. like it just like that layered feeling. It's interesting that image of um the father laying. I had imagined that as mountains and I don't know why, but that's what I, I didn't I hadn't seen that as water. Oh. But I, you know, who knows? I it could be I could be either, but I just think that's also what's sort of great about the artwork in this book is that it's it's not abstract in any way, except for that there's lots of room for interpretation and like feeling. And, you know, I, I also love that the artwork was reminded me of a comic book. 
um like she has some of the faces have like the polka dots like the comic book polka dots you know like yes the shadowing or whatever and I thought that was really cool because the actual drawings or watercolors themselves don't necessarily look like a traditional comic book but some of the effects that are used did and that was kind of a cool marriage of like these different styles and forms and I think you know probably you could like talk about you know, Vietnamese culture and American culture and like them being married in her artwork itself. And I don't, I just feel like um, this book was doing so much and yeah. so little at the same time, which is, you know, again, like my favorite kind of compliment, you know, yeah. <laughs> like being yep. like, this book is so much and so little. So if you had to describe like, what is the propelling force in this book? Why did you keep reading? I, for me, it was how is she going to, explain the war and like the fam her family's relationship to the war and like that was for me what I was more interested in most interested in and like most curious about and when I got kind of to the end of the war like once they left Mm -hmm. Vietnam I think I lost I lost a little bit of interest in the book like I was so concerned about Vietnam yeah for me what about you I read for the parental relationships. Mm, interesting. I read for the spaces between the parents who um, who met young, had ideas about each other, had very, very hard lives and made this very daring escape and were not close with each other and, and were there for their children, but were not close to their children, which is a dynamic I'm very, very familiar with. Yeah. As a South Asian... And I think my parents were sort of, um, I think my father was a really, really warm man. And so he sort of reset that tone in our family. But I've met so many of my friends that grew up with parents with these kind of unimaginable struggles and the way that they live their lives. It's so hard. So many of them, it's so hard for them to create anything because they feel like they're wasting the chance that their parents gave them. Mm. They're not immediately making money or finding some way to provide incredible amounts of stability because the things that their parents went through were so awful and so destabilizing that to like take the time to draw a story, to take the time to sort of through what your, you know, what your, how your emotional resonance with the story is going to show up in the watercolor of right is to waste that time. So I, I was sort of, I mean, okay. I'll also say to you, I also had this feeling when I was reading this because I was like, oh, wow, I wonder, I wonder how her family, I wonder how they, how they took her talent. Were they, or did they celebrate her talent? Because it's, she's phenomenally talented. Yeah, insanely you're, talented. Every page of the book, you're just like, wow, your brain and your perspective and your drawings and everything, right? Every, the most exciting thing about this book to me is that you never know what's going to happen on the next page mm-hmm. in terms of layout. Mm. So it breaks the frame a lot. The watercolor crawls all over the page. You have no idea if you're going to be looking at something with tight panels or if it's just going to flow all the way across one page into another. And what you're going to see there is, the, the crazy, the kind of the counterpoint to that is you're seeing these very historically accurate scenes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like watching a documentary right. with this kind of rush of feeling behind it. Anyway, when I was reading it, I, I found myself thinking a lot about how did she allow herself the freedom to write this? Hmm. How did she allow herself the freedom to find this form? I'm so impressed by that. Yeah, I'm so impressed by wandering into this very fraught story of of kind of the gaps 
in between the love you feel for your parents and the ways in which you're beholden to them. And then this entire history of a country that you'll, that you don't return to. I'm so kind of impressed of, of how emotional mm-hmm. that is and how, how it feels to me that she just let herself be herself as an artist. Yeah. This feels like the book of a fully realized artist, right? It doesn't feel like this is somebody's first memoir. It feels like, no. oh, you've been, you've been doing this forever. You've written seven of these. This is one of them. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> feels like a very, I don't know, mature. Is that the right word to say? Matured book, like storytelling. Yeah. Um, I wonder for you, because your first book was a novel, a traditional novel, and then your second book is this graphic memoir. And I'm wondering as someone, you know, who who was a writer all along. I mean, in your book, you talk about being a writer very early, like in college and after college and trying to figure that out. And so I'm wondering when you decided to make this graphic work, did you go and like read a bunch of graphic memoirs and graphic novels and things and be like, how does this work? Or did you just say like, I know how to tell a story and I'm just adding these other elements? Definitely the second, but also just out of self-preservation because I knew if I were to read a bunch of graphic novels, I'd get really scared about how much better everyone was, honestly. Um, And I just had to limit the world rather than expand it, right? And so, since have you started reading more graphic novels? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I, it's not that I didn't read them before. I read them. But in the course of when I, like, from when I, when I realized I was going to write one, mm-hmm. and the two years that I wrote that book, I did not pick up any other work because I was afraid of, I knew, I mean, I know, like, I'm not the world's best illustrator. I'm reasonably good. My method is janky and funny and like a zine. It's not a beautifully produced thing. It is, you can feel the person slapping it together behind it. That feels important to me about the way that my work works, but it's not award-winning illustrative work, you know? And so I didn't want to scare myself with other people's talent. Mm. I just thought, yeah, they are. They're wildly talented. And you've also just got your story. You have to get it out the way that you can. Yeah. I just, it's such an interesting form because most, I don't know, not most people, but a lot of people aren't good at both things, right? Like the art and the writing part, like the visual art and the writing part. And so I think it's really cool when it comes together and the writing and the art mesh and tell a story and it works together because I, I haven't read very many, but I have to imagine there's probably some where the art is like, Ooh, not great. Or the writing is like, Ooh, not great. And and I've read three and they've all been like really good. And so I'm like, maybe are they all just really good? Or like, <laughs> I just have like good recommenders. I don't know. But I, yeah, I do feel like if you can go into the space where you, I think there is something that's really exciting about graphic work in that I do feel like people, because it's uncomfortable for them, just go with the uncomfortability rather than mm-hmm. trying to control it and saying it should be this or it should be that. So I think that might be also part of it is that, is that you're not writing it to critique it. I mean, Mm -hmm. sorry, you're not reading it to critique it. You're not reading it to know what all the boundaries are so you can just enjoy it, which to me is like, yeah, man. That's one of your your questions should be, what is the last book that you read that made you forget you were reading a book? (laughs) I don't even know (laughs) what that means. (laughs) Because, you know, because I think there's a way in which when we are readers, we really do. We go through a lot of books. But sometimes you'll pick up something and it's not, you're not in a book anymore. You're in an alternate dimension. Yeah. You're with, 
You know what I mean? You're with a traveler that's telling you a thing and you're just following them. Right. Right. This is not just the tequila talking. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I do. I do hear what you're saying. Like that sometimes a book can transcend like the reader in a way that you don't feel the obligation of the responsibility of reading it sort of. Like, cause when I read things, I go in like being like, okay, who would like this book? What does yes. this mean? What is yes. this in relationship to yes. who would this be a good recommendation for? What's the lineage, you know? And so I do think like when I try a new form or when I, when I try something different and it's good, I yeah. get that sense. Like, um, I just read Clint Smith's book of poetry and I'm pretty new oh. to poetry, yes. but counting descent is so good. And it was one of those books where I was like, also Finna by, um, Nate Marshall, both of those books. I was like, these are really, really good. And I don't have the language to really talk about them. So I can just sort of enjoy them. Whereas when I read a really good memoir, I mostly have the language to talk about it because I'm much more practiced. So, and that's sort of my experience so far with graphic novel is like, I read three. They've all, I mean, so it's your book, um, T's book. And then I read Displacement by Kiku Hughes. Great. Which I liked. I that that one was my least favorite because that one felt the most like I'm teaching you about this moment in history, and I sort of felt like right. I know this moment in history pretty well because it falls into my post 1865 <laughs> war, and so it just felt like a little remedial for me. It didn't have as much like creative retelling as as T's book did, but still like reading those things, I'm I'm gathering the language, and so when I do a new form, I. I feel like I'm able to remove my like reader, reviewer, podcaster, critic brain and able yeah. to just be like, I'm learning something, which yeah. is harder, I guess, for things that I, I feel more confident in reading or that I read more often. Yes. No, that, 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 that does make sense to me. And I also, I mean, the thing that I think is really interesting about this book in particular is the scope is yes. really wild, right? Yes, yes. Because it's got this, it's like this huge historical scope and then this very, very intimate family, right? right? These like very, very almost like whispered disappointments right. in each other. Right, And right. so it is, when people say something is actually dizzying in scope, like they're talking about books like this, yeah. books that give you the world and also like a teardrop on a leaf, you know, right. just the this kind of way of relating to so many things that you have to expand to meet it. Yeah. And I feel like, I think we get that a lot more in movies, right? Where it's like, right. like, like something like cold right. mountain where it's yep. like this really tiny story inside this huge moment in history. And I think in books for whatever reason, probably marketing, we'll play marketing again, but books are either like huge books about history or they're small books about people. And so there's less, like, I I think there are books that do it, but I think it's less, it's harder. It's harder to maybe sell a book that is covering vast swaths of history and these tiny intimate stories because it's like who will read this who will read this book it's like everyone will read this fucking book if it's good you know like but Uh I do think in movies it's easier because just like graphic novel you have that visual element so you don't have to write every fucking sentence you can just cut to a scene of a you know a beach and it's like I got it I feel it I'm here with you now what are the lovers doing or whatever you know, what's really interesting about what you're saying, what's so interesting so for me, the process of writing that book, I realized I would write 
And then once I would put it down on a page, like get the visuals down, I would cut 80% of what I'd written because of the exact phenomenon that you're talking about, because you see beach, you see this, and all of a sudden all of your history comes to the page with me. Right. 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 Yeah, exactly. Like we all have, there's like a shared visual. I mean, if you can see it, I mean, I think it's also true. Like if you could put a smell in a book like that, it would, other senses would work. It just, you can't do, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want it to, I don't want to assume that just being able to see, but in this medium, of course, it's about your eyes. But I think like when you hear a song, the same things happen Yeah, and yeah. and movies are able to do that too, where it's like, oh, I heard this song and you're like, oh shit, I know exactly where we are. Like, dang, it's about to go down. Like, yeah. and I just think that sometimes I think sometimes when you just have the word on the page or, or in the audiobook or whatever, you lose, you lose the ability to be big and small because you are trying to be big and small, if that makes sense. Like sometimes writers are trying too hard. Yeah. You become, you, their self-consciousness becomes your self-consciousness. Yeah, right? that's exactly right. And you, and you feel the kind of the creakiness between those, which is maybe also part of the reason why this book is, is overwhelming because there were overwhelming in a good way um, for me, which is that I, I often found myself turning to pages and being like, I cannot fathom how you thought this one up. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot yeah. fathom how you thought this was the image to go with here and how you broke it across the page and how this information is coming from here. Like to me, it felt like very much, being in the deep interior of somebody's mind, like their id is on the next stool over in the bar, you know, like you're just in there, you're in there yeah. with them and their, and their deep subterranean thoughts as they're also telling you things that are completely normal. And you should totally follow this because this is history. Right. But the undercurrent of all of it felt to me really like, I don't know, or consciousness, you know what I mean? Just like this deep place. Yeah. And, and what you were saying before about like this, this really huge scope, and then also this really intimate family, what was very cool about the book is that the family was in the history, you know, yes. like they were very much living okay. in the history, you know, it's okay. like, like, Let's I feel like, talk. yeah, other people would be like, this was going on meanwhile mm -hmm. in the kitchen but it was like oh this thing was going on and my parents were living in that exact moment and I was on my mom's back in our little carrier like walking through that exact field or like she yes. was able to find like the truth of her family's history and and place it in the history of this of this war of this moment and like that was really fucking cool because you felt like you were just going along with the buoy family like here we are yeah and i i loved i loved that because it also lent another layer of complexity to the history that for me i felt like i sort of knew but it was like yeah. oh right like when we think about the vietnam war we think about people but we don't actually think about people Right. And like, yes. I, I had this yes. similar conversation with Clint Smith on the podcast mm -hmm. because his book yeah. about slavery, we talked about like how there, we all know like Frederick Douglass, like Harriet Tubman and these extraordinary people who had been enslaved, but we don't talk about like the normal slave, ever. right? Like we ever, don't ever, ever talk about the, per like, just like day-to-day -day life or like what that means and what that feels like. And like, we don't talk about, like, we might talk about someone being whipped by an overseer, but we don't actually talk about what that does to like the eight-year-old kid who's called around to watch this moment, right? And then like, where does that kid go? Like who's in their house with them? Like all of these other parts. And I felt like T's family was like that ordinary family and not in a pejorative yes. way, but like they yes. represented just like people who lived in Vietnam at the time. 
who are just trying to get by. Absolutely. Okay. I'm going to return to that, but I also want to quickly say if I could re-answer the president question, he okay. doesn't get one book. He gets three. Okay. Okay. So go it ahead. it have to be heavy and Clint Smith's book and somebody's daughter. I feel yeah. like that. That's a trio. Right. <laughs> that would be like, if we could get, I know it's three, but like, that would be enough context and history and scope for me to feel like you're not going to get away from this. You're not going to mm-hmm. run from this. Mm-hmm. There's no corner that your brain can run to now where it mm-hmm. can tell you that this didn't happen. We have sealed all the corners. Yeah. Uh, you now I love have to that. do with the humanity. Okay. So getting back to the book though, tell me about when on page is 267, you see for the first and only time. Oh my gosh. Wait, <laughs> I have a huge moment about these pictures. Tell me, tell yes. me, tell me. Okay. Let's so go. these are the pictures of T's family when they get to the refugee camp in Malaysia. Is that where they go? Yeah. Okay. So the first thing that popped into my mind was that recent article um, of, or that recent, uh, well, first of all, the first thing that happened is I was like, holy shit, holy shit, everything's changed. Like I had a, like a, it like kind of took my breath away moment, but then it reminded me of, I, I wish I'd looked it up, but there was an artist who had photoshopped like smiles onto Cambodian Khmer yes. K- yes. Rouge people. Yep. I remember people this. who had been who not Khmer Rouge people, people who had been become like refugees or who had become imprisoned by the Khmer Rouge. Um, right. And it reminded me of that because you're building up to this moment in this book and then you finally get these pictures and, and the thought of a fucking person having the audacity to Photoshop smiles onto people who have been through so much and have had to leave their home and of like, it just like the fucking audacity. So it reminded me of that, but in yeah. the emotional moment of it was like, a whoa, 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 whoa. These are humans. Like yeah. we've been seeing these illustrations, but this is someone's life. And like, yeah. Uh, it, it's a major moment. I stopped. Yeah. I stopped on it for a while and kept looking yes. at them. Right. Because the whole time, I think part of it, part of it is because the drawing is so emotional. You in the course of reading this book, or I will speak for myself in the course of reading the book, I thought I was understanding the full gravity. I thought I was like, this is hard to take. Some of this is hard to understand. It's very beautiful. I'm going, I'm in the flow. I get this. And then suddenly you get Mm -hmm. to these pictures of the real people who look exactly by the way, like the drawings. Exactly. (laughs) Like exactly, exactly. And it is so heartbreaking because you have, for me, what it let me know was like, Oh girl, you don't understand the beginning of this. Right. You're just reading a book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These are people. You're just reading a book and understanding a history for maybe the first time. These are people. This is the story of their bodies mm-hmm. and how their bodies got through this world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's a it's a major like wow moment for the reader like whether you know reflective whatever it is but like it stops you in your tracks for sure for sure I mean it's it's incredible it's an incredible moment I we both have that note written down (laughs) I literally have refugee photos exclamation 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 um and and yeah it's like it's a it's definitely a putting the reader in their place yes for sure yes And I think like most books that are good have that moment, right? Like 
you need I just don't know that in every book it's so clear what that moment is. I think oh, that's, that's what's that's special. Point. Oh my god, I love that. I don't want to know where, what that point is for every book. Right. But I love that idea. You're right. There is a moment where it's we're right. It takes it takes the observer who has so far been unobserved themselves. Right. And it just grabs them and it's like, right. I see you too. You might be reading me, but I see you too. Right. Yeah. Funny how that happened. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, this is, so this is one of the things that in the, I don't know which version of the book you have. I think my book version is like the new, one of the newer ones and there's um, an author's note Um, that talks about what the title of the book was going to be and it was the refugee reflex and t decided not to use that because it sounded too much like acid reflux and that's what they say um 
And, but it does come up in the book later when there's that fire in the family apartment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that basically T is like, I realized when everyone in my family was panicking because there was the fire downstairs and I knew what to do and I knew how to handle this situation and I stayed calm and got everyone out and all of this, that that is this refugee reflex. And I found that moment to be sort of a smaller aha moment, if you will use my Oprah, Oprah-ism, the aha moment. Yeah, let's go there. Let's go there. I don't know what you thought about that. That's such a good way to say that. I don't think I, I don't think I, now that you say it that way, I'm like, that is exactly what that was. That is exactly what that was. I, I put it in the, in the, um, for me, so much of this was really just tracing the generational trauma. And so much of what it did was it gave me permission to also sort of understand my own generational trauma. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and to kind of, and to kind of say like, no, those are real stories too. Right. Yeah. Um, and that, and it was very helpful in the way that it kind of did that. But I guess I didn't, I didn't quite put that moment the way I really appreciate the way that you put it together. Cause I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's also, it's one of those things that makes me also kind of wonder, I feel like it sets us up for understanding where the writing came from. Do you know what I mean? Like, this say is more, the say more. Because something like that of being like, we are in the trauma and I could step outside of it. Mm, yes. Okay. To do the thing. Mm-hmm. It makes you understand like, oh, you're the person that can be both in the trauma and step outside of it. Right. This is the moment that you understood that thing about yourself. Right. 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 And this is the moment that you became the kind of person that's going to write this kind of a book. Right. And like, you're the person in the crisis that we all want to be close to. Yes. I am not that person, by the I'm way. Not, I'm not that. Per- I discovered, unfortunately, in a very freak situation that I am not, not that person. And it was devastating to me because I sort of thought that I was that person. Someone had a seizure on a, ta- at a, on a table at a coffee shop and they fell on our table. And my husband is a doctor. And my husband was so good, like so fucking calm. And I froze, was so freaked out. And I, I still like beat myself up about how not who I thought that I was, I was in that moment. Isn't that But weird? he was there. But wait a minute. Let's just, let's take that back a minute. <laughs> because I find that so often, if, if everyone around me is traumatized, I will untraumatize myself to fill in the gap. Yeah. Like if nobody else can handle it, I'm definitely going to rise to the occasion. Yeah. But I, but I would have done the same thing. If there would have been an actual doctor in that moment, I've been like, you deal with this because right. I'm going to lose my mind. Right. right. Yeah, that's true. But I, yeah, but yeah, I hear you. I think that's true because sometimes when I'm on a plane, I have turbulence anxiety. And then sometimes I'll be sitting next to someone who has worse turbulence anxiety. And then I get really calm and I'm like, I'm like, it's okay. This is natural. This is showing that the yeah. plane is working. But if I'm by myself, I am like white knuckling the thing. Like, <sighs> can I tell you a crazy thing? So yes. I, um, I know how to fly. I grew up flying a small plane with my dad. At one point I was going to get my license. This is a Whoa. very long sounds, It sounds like a crazy story, but whatever. When I am on a plane and I have turbulence, anxiety, like the one time that I looked at Jed and I was like, something is wrong with the plane. Oh my God. And he goes, what? And I was like, something is wrong with the plane. Something is going wrong with the plane. And he was like, you have to calm down. And right then they got on and they're like, um, 
our wheel is not retracting. We're making an emergency landing. Like no. they, they had a whole thing. Mm -mm. So now every time there's turbulence, he checks with me. He's like, is this something is wrong with the plane? <laughs> oh my God. I need you to come with me everywhere I go. So you can tell me to come. Like it's normal weirdo. <laughs> this is normal. This means we're all going to die. No, I won't. That is my, I mean, oh my God, airplanes. But yes, T is the person you want with you in yes. these moments because, yes. because they're able to, I guess, be calm. And like, yeah. And the thing that is also like connected to the generational trauma part of that is that it feels like leading up to this moment, her parents had been that those people and that that was passed on that, that reflex. Like they had, they had gotten all the way through Vietnam, through Malaysia. They'd gone through refugee camps. The mother had a freaking baby in a refugee camp. And then it's like, we've been in America for a while. We're getting older. Like we have to pass this to you. Someone else needs to be the bearer of the refugee reflex. Yes. Oh, such a great, I'm a, I'm so glad that you found a book that told you about that, but also that you traced it back there because I always felt like that was the, for me, I always read that moment. as like, Oh, this is when you became the writer. I see. But that, it mm. made, it, I like it so much more in the context of I pass this down to you. Right. I feel like also the other thing, like I I'm half white, half black. And my, my immigrant side of my family is my white family. My black family has been here for, I don't know how long, but a long time. We're, we're black American, um, like slave black. And I think that one of the things that I always sh not struggle with, but I always like think about is the difference between, you know, people of color who are immigrants to this country versus like black Americans who have been here for a long time. And then, mm. you know, one of like what you were talking about earlier is like, you know, sometimes parents of immigrants or like or first generation or whatever, they have fear about being creative or like having the time and the space to do that, as you were saying before. Yep. And I yep. think for like black Americans who have, who are, whose family was enslaved, like we've had so many generations in this country, even though we've been, you know, kicked around and killed and abused yep. and legislated against there isn't that same fear about creativity because this is our home and we don't feel yes. in the same way as like, as like, Oh, there's this anxiety around that. And so I wonder for people whose families have come more recently, like what that will look like in the future when the, when the children and the generations forward have that space and confidence to create here. Do you know what I'm getting at? Yes. I live in this place all the time because I'm actively I mean, my job is working with students right. and and kind of actively pursuing in them the stories that were squished out of mm. me, the ones that I was told were unattractive or didn't make sense, so that's not really a full story that I recognize in them as like, no, that is a full story. That's a full story. That's your full story. You go with that. And at the same time, I see that, and I and I always want to write about this this kind of moment that I feel acutely, which is both an incredible happiness about it and a real complexity around the sadness that it wasn't for me. Mm. Yeah. You know, like holding both of those things, like it's, I'm not saying it's easy to be a bisexual brown woman. It's so easy to be a bisexual brown woman today. But you know, when I was growing up, it definitely wasn't, I knew what I was from the get go. Right. I knew what I was from age five. Right. Like the only time I ever didn't know what I was, was um, I, I sort of stopped talking about it from ages 12 to 16 because I understood 
I understood how scary things were going to be for me. But really, after 16, I was like, nope, still this way. <laughs> and, and I see now, I'm so thrilled to see the acceptance for the younger generation. And then there's also the me that is the girl that really would have wished mm. for that. Mm-hmm. It really would have wished for that kind of love, that kind of even self-love, that kind of community, that kind of anybody right. to talk to that I think like, what artist would I have been if I could have loved that part of myself sooner? Right. Yeah. I think about that kind of like possibility often when I think about yeah. art. I mean, I went to theater school, so I've, I've been thinking about art for a long time. Recently, it's books, but it used to be, you know, Mm -mm. on stage or in film. And I think about like all the great stuff that people from different marginalized communities have created, like all the things that I love and feel passionately about and like bring bring so much to my life. And then I think about the possibility of what could have been had they not had doors slammed in their faces or who the other people that they were in community with who didn't get their thing published or didn't get their thing made like what is that art and like just all the things that we miss out on because of white supremacy and homophobia and you know ableism whatever whatever the ism obia is but like there's just there's no cap on what creativity can be. And so when I read a book like The Best We Could Do and I see something in a totally new way that I thought that I knew and I understood and the only real difference is that this person is telling the story differently and it, I'm seeing it in a different way, like that's mm-hmm. really an incredible experience because there's nothing new in this book, right? Like there's no new information right. about the war. There's no new information about what it is to be, to have a complicated relationship with your parents. Like, but just the way that the story is told, it feels new and different. And like, that is, that's like the miracle of creativity, right? Like that's like the gold mine, the, the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Like that's the thing. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so to like have Mm -hmm. it realized in any form. And sometimes it's like a sentence in a book, right? Like sometimes it's not the whole work. In this case, it is. And like, for me, you know, it hit on a lot of things that I care about and I'm interested in. And so that too helped me to to feel it in a way that maybe I would have missed if it wasn't around, you know, this particular war or this particular, you know, and also Tia's like lives in the Bay Area, which is where I'm from. Like, I just, I could connect to this book and see the artistry and the storytelling in a way that was really... I, it's just, it's special. I don't know. That's a, such a boring word. Wow. No, it's beautiful. I love that. I really love that. It's so funny because I just, I just was giving this lecture today on, um, on revision, right? And mm. in tra- trying to talk to writers about revision, which is such a dreadful word. And, and people kind of, they, they think of their like, you know, high school term paper when you right. think of revision. But I, I love revision because for me, it's the moment that the you that wanted to write this thing. Cause you always, when you want to write a thing, it's like a hum under your skin and you just head out for this territory because you feel it. And you're like, I know this place, I'm going to get to this place. And then the crazy thing that happens is in the course of creating you, it is like, it is, you see it. And it's like, none of this is magic. None of this looks good. This is not the magical mm-hmm. place, but that's the art, right? The right. art is the distance between what you can actually do and the hum of your skin that propels you mm. 
the territory. So the art is how you meet that moment, yeah. right? The art is in that, in like what you're, what you're capable of. And so something like this becomes extraordinary because, because you can quite frankly see the movement of the watercolor across the page. You can see the freeing mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. her own kind of creative ambition across the page. And there's something really joyful about yeah. that in this, in this story that's otherwise bound by, you know, history and bound by relationships that might never make sense. There's something so wild about that. Yeah. Oh, yes. There's one, this is like one very specific moment um, in the book where, where they talk about the um, Viet Cong being shot in the head, that famous photo, that Pulitzer Prize winning yes. photo. And yep. for me, again, I am deeply interested in this history. And so for me, that moment being kind of unpacked was another aha moment for me of like, mm -hmm. of like, yep. holy shit. Yep. The ways that we distill the narratives of history, like, or the ways yep. we distill like what happens in history for narrative's sake is yep. I think fraught at best, <laughs> but like yes. that this image, another image that I think was in a book, I can't remember what book, but it was in another book we talked about on the show, um, was the starving child and the bird, the vulture that comes down and the guy who took that picture, um, that also won a yes. Pulitzer. Yeah. And that yeah. is another kind of image where it's like, we understand it as one thing, but we forget about like the complexity of everything around the image. Like you know, yes. a picture is worth a thousand words, but like, it's not worth every word. Like you can't get it to tell the full story, no matter, no matter what. And like that Viet Cong um, execution and then the way that, that T drew it. And like, I don't, I, I yeah. have like chills. I don't even know what it, why, but I found that moment to be just like a kind of similar to the picture thing as like, you think, you know, but you have no fucking idea. Like this shit is yes. like, this book could never explain it all. Nothing could ever explain it all. Like you kind of had right. to be there. You, like, and I, I guess it's sort of like akin to what's happening in America right now is like, if you wrote the history of America right now, you and I would be considered Americans and we would be the bad guys too, because America's so fucked up right now. And like, there's right. a way more complicated story about what's going on in America that we understand and is like very clear to us. But in 50 years, right. you know, Trump became president, period. That's the end of the sentence. Yep. So what yep. does that say about you and I? And I think that like that moment, it's kind of breaking down that picture was a reminder of like, not everybody was bad. Not everybody believed this. A lot of people believed a lot of different things. You know, like yes. we talked about loving problematic white people and our families. And like, when you move 50 years away from that, what's that Ken Burns documentary, you know? And like, absolutely. So yes. And how do you look back on that time? How do you make sense of that time? Right. And yeah. So that moment, like, that's such a good comparison. And that, and that photograph, I always think of that photograph because isn't that, isn't that the photograph where the photographer ended up killing himself? The bird one. Yeah. Yeah. The bird one he did. Right. So the, so there's also the peril of being the person who records any part of the story. Right. And the person who did the Viet Cong photo wished that yes. he hadn't won the Pulitzer because he of knew course. the full story. Yes. And it, and it haunts you, right? right? It haunts you when your art when the thing that you can do in the world becomes an agent of capturing damage right 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 yeah like what is that line that you're gonna walk and how do you do that okay which is by the way one more thing that i want to talk about okay. in this book which is i find so often one of the things that i am talking about with my um 
students and and you know they often are asking me how do i say the truth about my family when it will hurt my family mm. and there is something to me about this book that was so fearless because she didn't throw anyone under a bus mm -hmm. it's not that but the way in which she just let her parents be as distanced as they were as disappointing as they were in cases, as human as they were, as resilient as they were, you know what I mean? As right, revolutionaries, right. she did all the things with them. And I think that's such a complex space for somebody coming from a marginalized community to write into because so many times, you know, with a book like this, that people are judging your family from this. And point, case in point, when I put out my book, there were a lot of people that were really upset that I talked about colorism because they said that I, they felt like I had given Americans um, free license to be racist. And they're like, if you're saying that we are colorist, then you're admitting to them that we also have this problem. And I was like, if we're not talking about the problem, what are we talking right, about? Right. And you also know? no one in America needs an excuse to be racist. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> they're not doing like, it's it. It's not like somebody made them racist yeah. pie and was like, right. here, have some of this. And it was just so delicious. Um, <laughs> but, but I do love, there's a way in which, and, there's a way in which, and I remember reading this for the first time and it really affecting me where I thought, oh, she just let her parents be her parents. She didn't try to make them likable. She didn't try to make them relatable. And yet I love them because I know these parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like I know these parents, mm -hmm. these parents for me, that's part of, you know, we talked about like, what did you go into the book for? For me, it was the parental relationships because I know what it is like to have parents that you can never really know. Right. Hmm. Well, that is sort of, the, the last thing that I had that I really wanted to talk about is sort of being a parent and being an adult child to a parent. Cause I feel like that comes up in your book and that definitely yes. comes up in this book. And that's something yep. I'm currently navigating as a new parent and an adult child. Yep. And I mean, I think it's on page 316 when she talks about how she called her mother by the name that her mother didn't want, want to be called by. Because mm -hmm. because they preferred the southern word ma, a jolly bright sound. We insisted it fit her better. I wonder now how I would feel if my son did something like that to me. Call me mama. No, you are mommy. Yeah. And and have and she says, having a child taught me certainly that I am not the center of the universe. But being a child, even a grown up one, seems to me to be a limit lifetime pass for selfishness. It's just it's something that I think a lot of people who are, even if you don't have children, just an adult yeah. child to a parent that, yeah. that we struggle with where it's like, I don't need your help or I didn't ask for this or I'm now, you know, 35, leave me alone, yeah. back off. Yeah. Yeah. And that part was really interesting, interesting to me. And, and I had a, I had similar thinking about it. I read your book first, so I had similar thinking about it, but that kind of like crystallized a lot of the feelings and I don't know, I'm, I'm just curious if that resonated with you at all, since you were so there for the parent relationship. Yeah. And I really love when that, when that section goes on, it says we hang resentment onto the things our parents did to us or the things they didn't do for mm -hmm. to us. Right. And in my case, call them by the wrong name, just unpacking that moment. And I do think that one of the things that happens when you are a parent is that you suddenly kind of forgive your parents for a lot. Mm -hmm. Right. Instantly, like there's a way in which you sort of rush, especially in the first couple of years, where you're like, it's fine. It's all fine. Who knows what this nightmare is? Right. You did the best you could. The paper's over things for a number of years and then it comes back. But I think there's, um, 
there is this kind of there is this sort of profound realization of like, oh, I too will enact these traumas on my child. Mm -hmm. I too will do this and they too will not see me. Right. And that wasn't about the time and place we were in. That is about the parent and child relationship. Right. And so that is like that thing traveled with us from one country to another and it travels across generations. Right. And I always think this about, about my child. I've always thought, what do you do? Like, I think it must be impossible for my it must have been impossible for my father, I would say, who's very close to me as a child. Like, what did he do with the child who thought he was the sun and the moon and was just always like on his side and trying to look like him? And I would even like try to like pretend I had a like a, like a mustache because <laughs> he had a mustache and I would be like, I mean, I would have one in a couple of years anyway. But anyway, like, you know what I mean? It was like this thing. Like, I idolized him. What do you do with the gap between that child and then the 13-year-old who can kind of barely look at you, which is just a 13 year old thing. But then the very complicated adult woman who is never as close to you mm -hmm. as the little person was, sure, you know, mm -hmm. who like loves you and, but like, whatever, but it's like three different people, right? You're having a relationship with three different people. And how do you, how do you capture what can stay, what can kind of make that transition and what will never, what you leave behind in each life as you go, because it is another form of being a kind of emotional refugee. It is another form of being an immigrant to a new land. You lose that person every time. Right. I don't know. I'm sorry. I know. I'm like, I'm like, my kids are 18 months. I hope that I haven't lost them already. <laughs> you definitely haven't. And also, you know, I mean, one of the funny things, I said this to my son the other day, I was like, you know, you're going to become an adult and you'll of course have to hate me for a while. And he goes, don't you know, mom, like, that's not really the Gen Z thing. Kind of, he's like, you kind of like your parents. I mean, I hear you kind of like your parents the whole way through more or less because like, they're not doing the whole thing. I was like, wait, what is it? What it tell me? You're again? Like, wait, I'm like, going to be okay. We're going to be friends. Well, I think about yeah. that too. Just like, like I know so many amazing people and I'm like, you're so creative. You're so smart. You're so talented. You're so this. And like, I'm like, our kids are all going to think we're fucking idiot corn dog losers. And like, that's so depressing because like your son has like such a cool mom, you know, and I'm like if only these kids could know. My son absolutely does not think he has a cool mom. Right. And, like, what and my dad and my parents were super fucking cool too, but I did not think they were cool. I now think they're cool because I understand actually who they were in time and place. Yeah. Like when I look back at history, but at the time I was like, these people are annoying and dumb. Turns out my parents were like really fucking fun, great hang, like oh. awesome people. I had no clue. Wow. Yeah. But I, I mean, you come from that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I come from really fucking cool people, but you know, I hope my kids recognize that at some point. I know they're going to think I'm like a loser for a while because I talk about books. Like, they're going to be like, like, oh, my dad's a doctor and my mom talks to people who write. My mom reads books for fun. Like, what an awesome person. But eventually they're going to think I'm cool again when they're like, oh, you know Jason Reynolds? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. That's going to be like the moment when they find, hopefully Jason is still cool by then. I think he will be. Oh, Jason is eternally cool. In what universe? I don't even want to be part of the universe That's in true. which Jason would not be cool. Because what does that mean about the rest of That's us? True. That's um, true. He's such a like unequivocally lovely, lovely human. But, um, you know, with, with my son, it's very funny because my partner is a filmmaker. And so I, I heard him once saying to somebody like, yeah, dad's like got this cool job. He's da, 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 and like, what does your mom do? And he goes, you know, she's alone a lot. No. 
<laughs> that should go on your resume like alone a lot good talk <laughs> you seem lonely <laughs> that's incredible that's incredible oh my god okay um, the writer she seems lonely anyway um the last little thing the, no this is just basically the end of the episode where we talk about the title and the cover unless you had something else yeah. you wanted to add to what i had said no no no. Okay. let's talk about the title and the cover. title and the cover basically just thoughts feelings i don't know the i'll, I'll start i guess <laughs> I no, no, you're like I have feelings. I do so have let feelings. Me go. Yeah. I'll start. I love the cover, the way that it looks. I think it's really beautiful. I love the drawing. I love little T like looking back at us with her baby brother in the belly. Like I love mm-hmm. the whole thing. San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I see the bridges. I'm there. I actually don't care for the cover. I mean the title. The title did not evoke anything in me. Like when you suggested the book and I looked at it and I was like, yeah, eh, okay. Like the I don't know. It just doesn't feel as specific and as like it doesn't bring out anything to me in the way that the rest of the book does. Like, I don't think it that carries the book for me. Okay. All right. I'm going to go hand in hand combat with you. Okay. Here. Go ahead. Because for me, this is very much the Asian, like this to me was like the, the sentence of the Asian American immigrant experience. Mm. Like that is a thing I've heard from my parents so many times. And it's spoken and it's unspoken. Hmm. Like it was the best we could do. It was the best we could do. You know, it was just, it's sort of like a, you know, whatever, you know, it's kind of like, there were a lot of things that happened. There were a lot of ways in which you guys were broken. There was a lot of ways in which we had a rough entry into this country and we were scared all the time. We didn't have enough money and things were weird. It was the best we could do. Yeah. You know, there's kind of a like, you know, and it's, and it's also to me, it's a, it's a, I often hear that in the context of, as a parent, in a defensive mode Mm. explaining why these gaps exist and sort of, it's also just this thing of like, we, we did what we could. It might not have been the American ideal. It was never going to be the American ideal, but it was what we could do. Yeah. And so when I hear it, I hear it in that, um, in a very sort of, in a way that feels to me like the first time I heard a yo, which is a, which is a South Indian sort of expert, you know, exclamation. Um, when I heard that for the first time on master of none and I was like, Oh my God, somebody put a finger on my actual heart. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I haven't heard someone say this before. So for me, it made a lot of sense, um, as the kind of way to talk about both the way that parents under like understand the damage and immediately try to try to push it off onto like, let's forget that part. Let's forget that part. I feel like you won the hand-to-hand combat because I'm sure you're right. It de- it definitely fell in a place that's like, that's just not my experience. So it doesn't resonate with me, but I hear a yeah, thousand yeah. percent what you're saying that like, for you, that's like part of your life, like that phrase. And it makes sense a thousand percent. It just didn't, it didn't grab me in the way because that's not, you know, my experience, but. Your thing, totally. Um, no, I feel you. Yeah, I mean, I think we did it. I think we talked about the did book. We do it? I feel like shouldn't we do this every Yeah, every weekend? book we read, we should just get on the phone and talk. <laughs> this is an open invitation. Um Mira, you're so incredible. Thank you so so much for your time and your brain and sharing with us. This was the most fun ever. Thank you so much for having me. I fully enjoyed this and I'm down for any future reads. Let's like usually talk, let's just talk. Let's just talk. I'm down. Um everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening and thank you to Mira for being our guest. Also a special thank you to Tam for helping coordinate this interview. Okay, drum roll, please. 
our August book club pick is Emergency Contact by Mary H.K. Choi. It's sort of a young adult, new adult romance, coming of age story that is so delicious. I'm so excited to talk about it. We will discuss the book on the show on Wednesday, August 25th, and you can tune in next week to find out who our guest will be. If you like what you hear, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and consider joining the stacks back. Please make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 